Hello and welcome to the Katie Helper Show. I'm your host, Katie Helper, and I'm here with Katie Pacheco. Hello, everybody. You can find the Katie Helper Show on SoundCloud, on iTunes, on Patreon. And at Patreon, you just become members. It's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. And on iTunes, leave us a review. How's it going, Gabe? I'm feeling really good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm really excited about this week's episode. Yeah, so excited. Uh, you look tan. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I went I went out to the uh, Hamptons. Oh, yeah. Because I'm a, I'm a one percenter adjacent. Yeah, what's the deal with that? <laughs> well, one of my good friends is a tutor. And uh, that, and so he, their tutor company, um, has a whole bunch of clients out there. Wow. And yeah, the one percenters, they, they, their kids need constant, uh, stimuli and constant learning. So it's like babysitter tutors or just like friend tutors? No, or? they're just so no. So I went out and stayed at the house where all the tutors live. There's a tutor house. Yeah, they got to rent a house for all these people. I want to, I want to live in a in a tutor house. I wonder if it's, you know, it'd be interesting. Is if the Tudor house was a Tudor house. How do you like that architecture joke? I'm here all I like a nice awesome. I like a nice ranch style house. Right. right. For ranchers. Or for tutors. Yeah. Or mission, mission style. I do like mission style. I just hit the uh, microphone with my glasses. Yeah. Just to, we want full transparency. I just need everybody audience. to know what yeah. that sound was. Right. Not his schnoz. It was not a schnoz right. collision. So All right. Yeah, we are, that, that, we're cooking. We are, we're cooking. You guys with, like uh, our, our loose understanding of architecture? So it's over the summer? Yeah. It's summer, It's like summer school or catching these kids up or whatever. You got, they're constantly learning. Falling I behind. Mean, yeah, they're always <laughs> falling behind. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's where, you know, when, when uh, kids is. from lower economic backgrounds, you know, during the summer times, they just uh, forget everything that they learned. Uh, and then rich kids go to France or they like go and play tennis in Mallorca. Right. And then they come back with all of these enriched experiences right. as well as having two or three weeks of being tutored in French. Wow. So, you know, in who's going to succeed? Probably. Right? It's unclear. It's a toss Who gets up. A, head up, a heads up? Right. You know? Who gets the leg up? The leg up. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, but you know, the rich kids also suffer from uh, affluenza. <laughs> exactly. So they're more likely to run over people <laughs> yeah, without- driving drunk or uh, Brock Turner somebody behind a dumpster. Yeah. So, you know, those are the places boundaries, that- boundaries, poor guys. Well, right, they don't have any boundaries. Yeah, so very hard. So they, they get a lot more enrichment in school, but they, they get no moral or ethical um, right, or impulse guidelines. control. Yeah, no impulse. It's very hard to be that. It's very hard, especially when you're in the Hamptons, you want to run around and maybe you want to drive to a restaurant and <laughs> well, you may want to drink while you're there. I don't know what they're doing. I had a good time in the Hamptons, though. I had a couple lobster rolls. I love lobster rolls. Yeah, I got really sunburned, but just on the top I of my feet. S- uh, how did that happen? Well, I got too cocky. Yeah, you, got, you let your Mexican... Pride. Yeah. I sl- that, that Mexican pride I've got you every time. Well, Gabe. you know me. I don't like to tan anyway. I don't like premature aging. Right. So I slather my whole body in a SPF uh, whatever. 70,000. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, if you watch RoboCop, the first RoboCop, one of my favorite scenes is this interstitial <laughs> sketch where they show a woman who's like, since the ozone layer uh, disappeared, now use this. And it's like she just puts this bright uh, blue, like thick um, – suntan lotion all over her whole body. Mm. They say 20 seconds in the California sunshine is too much these days, ever since you lost the ozone layer. But that was before sunblock 5000. Just apply a pint to your body and you're good for hours. She's like, see you at the pool. See you by the pool. That's kind of how I am when I go to the beach. Right. But I forgot to put some on the tops of my feet. You forgot your feet. That's it. You forgot the feet. Don't That's forget. Awful. Start at the feet. Yeah. And get your feet. Get Head your to ears. Toes. Yes. But you got your ears this time? No. <laughs> Did you get ear burned also? I got ear and foot burned. Oh, wow. Okay. The rest of me is still uh, nice and bronzed. You yeah. are pretty bronzed. So I would think that you you probably don't. You have some bronze hubris. For all of our listeners out there, just imagine me as a bronzed Adonis. Yeah, exactly. I call him bronze Adonis. 12 pack Pacheco. Yeah, 12 pack Pacheco. I feel like it's an injustice because I'm Jewish and I haven't been to the Hamptons in a long time. And uh, we want to play you a great episode that we. Uh, we recorded live, hot, live, live, live. At Caveat. At Caveat, great venue. We spoke to Thomas Frank, 
who is a writer. Um, in fact, we give you his whole bio during the actual show, but he's great. It's a good time. And uh, we're just going to play it. Let's just roll it. Let's just let, get to it. Why are we wasting your time? All right, everybody. <laughs> All right, here you go. Here's our show live taping June 30th with Thomas Frank at Caveat. What a what a beautiful turnout. Look at everybody in here. Look at this. I can't see the second row, but the first row is very sexy. So, uh, hey, uh, welcome everybody to a, a live uh, recording of the Katie Halper Show here at Caveat. What a beautiful place. Thank you, welcome. And uh, it's my my privilege and honor to introduce you to your, your host tonight, uh, Katie Halper, the one and only. Thanks, Gabe. And it's my privilege and honor to introduce you guys to Gabe Pacheco, co-host, hey. one and only. Wow. I like this thing that we're doing where we kind of like big up each other. I know, yeah. It's pretty good. Something the, new. Yeah, we usually talk a lot of crap about each other. Uh, but uh, <laughs> what makes tonight different from every other night? Yes. Uh, we're, okay, no Jews in the audience. All right, cool. This is good. So. Right. Oh, good. Thank you. Thank you. Um, <laughs> ask someone about it. It's like, it's uh, Passover. It's a Jewish Easter thing. Okay. Um, <laughs> We're really excited to be talking about one of our favorite uh, books yeah. by one of our favorite authors. We love reading. We love reading. We like people that write books. We like both of those things. They often go hand in hand. Yeah. And um, how many of you guys have been to a live taping before of the Katie Alba Show, by the way? Okay, good. Great. Awesome. Okay, cool. Cool. And if it's your first time here, can I get a whoop whoop? Wow. Ah. Okay, cool. Well, this is a safe space for everyone, yeah. no matter what. Um, and... This week was a mixed week. How, how was your week, Gabe? My week? Uh, well, you know, you just look, sounded like you were in a play. I wanna my week. I wanna just uh, let's just accentuate the positive things to today. Today was amazing. Something really profound. I got to see. Uh, I got to cover marches happening all over the country today uh, to get families back together. So that was really cool. I was at Sirius XM earlier with Jorge Oliveras for. Uh, affirmative reaction and we got to see and talk to people all over the country trying to trying to bring these put get, get these babies out of cages so that was cool that was a good thing that's always a net positive yeah babies I'm, just out of cages. To, I'm just yeah <laughs> babies out of cages always positive um i'm just trying to look at the bright side so uh you know because we just started the show i'm sure things are gonna spiral out of control right. soon uh when we talk about the state of the world but right. the marches were good also, Ocasio-Cortez won. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's more good news. Yeah. Yeah. For, in case you guys don't know, she was running uh, in a congressional primary, and she beat uh, the, what do you call him, the grandfather from Texas Chains Chainsaw Massacre, I believe is what Gabe uh, called him, in a moment of slight ageism. But, um, yeah, Ocasio-Cortez won her congressional primary against Joe Crowley. Yeah. And, um, yeah. She actually, she ran on uh, uh, abolishing ICE and providing Medicare for all. That's great. But also do not underestimate the effect of appearing on the Katie Halper Show, which she did. She got that bump. She got that Katie Halper Show bump. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking you're being crazy. You're being an egomaniac. It's an isolated incident. Yeah, sounds like it. Except, you know who else won? Ben Jealous. Also oh. a guest on the Katie Halper Show. He also got that bump. That Katie Halper Show bump, yeah, KHSB. And uh, going back a little bit, uh, Larry Krasner also. I'm just saying, the common denominator, we're not going to go over the people who've been on the show who lost, because that's not Jermaine. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Casio is great. Um, very exciting. She wants to abolish ICE. She totally is a trendsetter with that. Now everyone wants to abolish ICE. Yeah. Also, all you feminists on Twitter who were like mad that people didn't cover Ocasio, you didn't cover her either. So I didn't go after anyone on Twitter because I'm a good person. But um, as a feminist who did cover her and a, a feminist ally who did cover her, all it takes is a tweet. Just cover your asses next time someone awesome runs. And then you can make fun of like the white straight men who didn't cover her. Just a, a PSA. Um, Speaking of white straight, I don't know if I want that transition for our guest. Um, <laughs> speaking of really great um, champions of w the working class and progressive politics and, and a solver of problems, we're going to bring out our 
our guest. Uh, this guy, you probably have heard of him. His name is Thomas Frank. He's a journalist. He's a writer. He's an historian. Uh, he wrote the book, What's the Matter with Kansas? He wrote the book, Listen Liberal, or Whatever Happened to the Party of the People. And his latest book is a collection of essays, Rendezvous with Oblivion. He also is the founder of The Baffler Magazine. He writes for places like Harper's and uh, The Guardian. So put your hands together for Thomas Frank. Yes. How are y'all doing today? It is so nice to be here in New York City. It's so great to have you here. Um, do you feel comfortable as a Kansanian? Uh, Kansan is the word. Kansan, sorry. I was trying a little, to make a little bit of trivia for you. So in, um, there's a river called the Arkansas River, and that's what it's called in Colorado and in Arkansas and places. And in Kansas, it's called the Arkansas River. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> Arkandu. Um, well, Thomas, thank you for coming. And can you tell us a little bit about... Um, well, you want to start, like, you know the movie Memento, where they start, like, backwards and go forward? Sorry, spoiler alert. Can you start with, um, you have a really, uh, the whole book is really good. All the essays are good. What I reviewed book? all what of them. What book is that, Katie? What them. is the title of oh, it? Oh, uh, Rendezvous with Oblivion. Awesome. Where did that, where do you think he got, he got that title? Uh, one of his essays, which no. is called Rendezvous with Oblivion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, like, for real, because, you know, when you make up headlines, you know. It comes from a speech by Franklin Roosevelt. I am so old now. I'm the only one that remembers He remembers things. sitting there by the fire listening yeah, to yeah. him. With the radio, the great big, you know, giant AM radio, you know, with the gigantic, they would have these gigantic speakers in them and it would make the whole floor shake. And, yeah, exactly. Great stuff, Yeah, and, uh, and went like this, right? <laughs> and Roosevelt said, I think he was talking about the, you know, the Depression, World War II was underway, and he said, this generation has a rendezvous with destiny. And it's one of his sort of, at the time, was one of his best-known phrases. And uh, anyhow. <laughs> so in lieu of destiny, we have a, we have a different have rendezvous, a folks. Are we, we're, are we staring into the abyss right now? <laughs> you know, yeah. I, that's, that's sort of what I meant. Yeah. I, I, I meant it as a, as a downer, yeah. And, it's, and I think that is accurate. I mean, I'm a born pessimist, and I've spent my career being pessimistic. And... All of my worst predictions keep coming true. Do you think there's a causal effect? A what? A causal effect? Like a if you didn't effect. predict it? You know, I wonder about that. I wonder about that. If like, uh, well, it, well, I'm sure we'll, we'll, we'll get to that at some point. The, you know, like people get blamed for But I certainly have a lot You're of guilt. You're just the messenger. I, fe I feel very guilty about it. About um, being right? Well... Not correct. It's not a rational reaction, okay? But look, I wrote about this 20 years ago. I mean, the situation that we're in now. And it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse all the time. And yeah, there's, I have a certain, um, I do have a feeling of, of guilt about it. Uh, and I don't know why, and I don't... Uh, know what to do, but I'm just going to ignore that. This you know, is that's good. What, that's, can, what, that's what they I invented Armagnac for. I so. wish we had a couch. We could get really into where this guilt <laughs> yeah. comes from. When did you start feeling guilty? <laughs> um, well, you must also be able to feel another satisfy, a more satisfying emotion, maybe I'm projecting, which is I, the I told you so. Although you'd probably rather not it's, be able it, to feel that and have been that, wrong. Well, I think you're getting close to it there, but it's like, yeah, the, you know, it's not, it's cold comfort to say that to, you know, when you when you're trying to, I have to live in this country. Right. <laughs> you know, I have children. You know, I, I want their lives to be happy. I want I want everyone's lives. To, and it's just it's um it's immensely distressing to me. Can I tell you a funny anecdote? No. <laughs> yes. So when I was writing What's the Matter with Kansas, this would have been in 2002 or 2003. And uh, at one point, I went up to Winnetka. I lived in Chicago at the time. And I went up to Winnetka for a book event. And I met a very senior Democratic Party figure. And uh, I bought his book. And I, was, and I got it autographed. And I was talking to him. I was chatting with a really nice guy. And I'm not going to tell you who it was. But he said... Um, I said, you know, I'm writing a book about, about Kansas and how they've gone so far to the right, which it was remarkable even then. This is when they had just finished having this fight over the theory of evolution in Kansas. And I was like, The jury's oh. still out. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And that was what, that's what made me want to write the book. That's what got me started on it. And so I was telling him about this and he said, you know, um, they've pushed too far. The, the pendulum is going to swing back the other way. 
And and I and I thought I'm like I'm like uh, you know of course that sound, seemed very reassuring. But I've spent the the next the you know all the years since then thinking about like how incredibly wrong that right. theory waiting of history for the is. Flow. Yeah, waiting for the pendulum to come and rescue you. You know, we don't have to do anything. It'll 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 fix right. itself all by its own. You know, we don't have to do anything. We don't have to raise a finger. It's just gravity. It's just gravity, folks. It's geometry. No, what come I've right learned back. from Star Wars is that it's all about balance. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. If yeah. things get too dark, they you know. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Historically speaking, moderate centrism always beats uh, right-wing radicalism. Oh yes, that's right. Yeah. Because it, yeah. it's 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 it's. Uh, but this is this is also, by the way, the allure of political science. It's a kind of geometry. It's just, everything is you know in this geometric relationship to, you know, and you can draw it out all out on a chart, and you can see that things have to come back, and you can also see that the the swing voter, what they call the median voter, is people just like us, and so the parties have to not. I'm sorry, not me. Yeah, I'm like me, yeah. I'm like way outside, but but I mean uh, people for nice professional class white collar people in the suburbs. That's who both parties have to pay attention to, and that's. And this has just been proven completely and utterly wrong. Right. The entire discipline is built on that theory. So the, why, uh, the median voter Why theory. is that? So you have people who aren't idiots, right? You have smart people. Because uh, that's Chuck, what they want to believe. Why do they want to believe Because it prioritizes them. So we're, so we're talking it's, about it's, so like Chuck Schumer, right, during the, during the, uh, the, during the, the 2016 remark, yes. elections, right, he said that we have to, for every white working, did he say white working class? Or I, working, something like anyway, that. Anyway, for any working class um Voter who that we lose, we're going to get a moderate suburban Republican. Then you had uh, Rendell, that really corrupt guy from Pennsylvania. He basically said the same thing. Paul the, real, the really awful thing is that these these guys are older than me. They're extremely experienced. They understand politics. And they didn't know that there's more working class people than there are rich, affluent suburbanites. Right. So, like, how can you not know that? How can you grow up in this country and be a politician? And, and those are your voters, and you don't know that. Yeah, so it's, how uh, do they not know it? Is it they're too insulated? They Is don't, it want, wishful they don't thinking? want to know that. They, look, so I, I, I really don't want to go down this road, but this is the, the <laughs> fight that I've been, this is the fight that I have been, this, this stupid crusade that I have been on for. 20 years and I and I'm sick of it and I don't want to talk about it anymore but Good night. Thanks for coming. <laughs> but it's just this. If if the swing voter is not in fact your nice affluent suburban soccer mom or whatever the you know, office park dad or you know you remember all the terms that they used to make up right. to describe these people. If that's not it or that maybe they are swing voters but there's not very many of them and there's this other swing voter that's the white working class and that's my you know, what I've pointed out again and again and again and again, and going back to, you know, the 60s, that is your swing demographic. If that is true, how are you going to reach them? There's only, there's only, well, there's two ways. One is uh, do the Bill Clinton thing and, uh, you know, and the other Which is... Which is what, dog whistle? Yeah. Okay. And the other, I mean, you'll get some of them that way, but whatever. It's, it's ugly and it's gross. But the other way is... Move to the left on economic issues, and okay. they don't want to do that. Okay, so let's. Say it's, the, it's the simplest goddamn calculus in the world. It's the simplest equation in the world. So let's. Take How a do vote. you win the votes of working class people? Well, you you speak to them on the issues that matter to them, which is always the same. It's jobs and the economy, always, always, always. So go out there and, and talk about you know uh, universal health care. Go out there and talk about deindustrialization. You know all this stuff. It's incredibly. Simple. It's incredibly easy. It's incredibly straightforward. It doesn't make Goldman Sachs happy. It doesn't make Google happy. It makes J.P. Morgan very sad when you do those things. Right. <laughs> and um, so they don't do them. Right. And they act as though it's like, well, who would ever think of doing something like that? That's absolutely crazy. They're, you know, and every rationalization that you can come up with, every kind of psychological trick to persuade themselves that they don't have to do that. So Bill Clinton, apparently, during the election, threw his cell phone off of his um, balcony in his Arkansas mansion because he was so upset about how the Clinton campaign wasn't reaching out to the white working class. I don't know if you heard this I've anecdote. I've never heard that, no. Yeah. Um, so his solution seemed to be like, why aren't you dog whistling or bullshitting better, right? Which also is not very sustainable. Wait, isn't this a radio show? 
Yeah, but oh yeah, it's a podcast. We can bleep it out. Oh, okay. Uh, we'll bleep it out. Yeah. I'm sorry. I, I used to I used to work in radio for many years. That I, I there's you didn't one know thing I know. City, you know this is extreme. This yeah. is extreme. Yeah. Yeah. Podcasting. I mean, we, are, we are talking about swingers, right? Yes. Swing voters. Safe safe sorry. harbor. Yeah. Yeah. Safe for safety word. Safe word. I don't know enough about that stuff to even make the jokes. Um, but. So, so it seems like there are a couple of options. One is you totally neg- neglect these these voters, or you appeal to their worst um, yeah. welfare reform. Uh, the, you appeal to their yeah, worst they, welfare. Remember, yeah. so you, people don't remember what Clinton did to try to make himself appealing to that demographic. But welfare for welfare reform was one. Mass incarceration was another. Okay. His famous. Uh, what would you call it? Um, humiliation of Jesse Jackson. Although that's something different. He was appealing to a different group with that. But it was, you know, famously humiliated Jesse Jackson. Now, remember when he did all these things and then throw NAFTA in there, which is a different thing, where he basically stabs these people in the, in the back after they've worked their butts off to get him elected, you know, the unions and stuff like that. They, they used to have a saying in the Clinton days, they've got nowhere else to go. Right. And this is, uh, if you're not old enough to remember, this was kind of the, the great uh, journalistic mantra of that age. You always repeated Person that. Well, they, they, yeah, they've got nowhere. They've got nowhere. <laughs> Very good. They've got nowhere else to go. And they would say this whenever he did something horrible to some right. uh, core Democratic uh, constituency. And um, do you want to hear my theory now? Yeah. Okay, I, I was going to build up to this and say it at the very end of the show, but we're at the very start, and I'll say it now. Yeah, memento, Yeah. <clears throat> So now that we know the swing group is, in fact, uh, well, there, there's, there's two groups that you have to pay attention to. And low, big surprise, it's the two groups that Bill Clinton uh, humiliated. It's uh, uh, white working class union members, that kind of thing. And it's black voters who, by and large, a lot of them stayed home mm-hmm. uh, on Election Day 2016. So those are the groups that you got to get back. Those are the groups that you got to inspire and you got to get them out voting for you. Who can you take for granted now? It's your, your nice liberal class affluent suburbanites. The, the ones who right. are out there, you know, <laughs> the never Trumpers. Right. They're not voting for Trump no matter what. No matter what. Right. I mean, so now they're, they're, ca- they're so. captive. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So like basically people who were Republicans up until yesterday. So you take, the cl- you take the entire Clinton calculus and you flip it on its head. Right. So there's a, one of the, I think, most dangerous... I sense doubt from you, but I'm going to convince you of this by the end What do you mean? Wait, what's, what doubt? If anything, I'm like, I'm trying to... I'm, I feel bad. I agree with you so much. Where's the tension? But what, where's the doubt? What's the doubt? I do nothing. No. Oh, okay. No, what makes this exciting is that we can make fun of the same people together. I think we can all agree on that, um, as well as basically everything else. But one of the most dangerous narratives, I think, is the idea... It's the radical centrists. That's who you take for granted. They're, they've already said, you know... They're uh, never, ever, ever right. in a million years voting for this guy. They're, you know, done well, and done. And They're <laughs> this idea that white working class voters and working class voters of other backgrounds have conflicting desires, which just isn't true. Like, there is this narrative, and it's a classic divide and conquer thing, right, where what is good for the white working class isn't good for people of color or other way around. And there's not well, a, you, yeah, what's it's a single re- issue I, I, I where hate that to break works. it to you, but it's incredibly easy to find things that are good for both of them. I know. Like, every <laughs> single thing that's actually, yeah. like, yeah, social yeah, welfare yeah. at all, welfare state at all. Yeah. You're, like, you're, yeah. Uh, what, Ocasio up in the Bronx all, named, yeah. a, you know, a whole, she ran on a whole yeah. bunch of them. Tur- whoa, turns the, out they're really popular. The only you know? thing it's is like, that you can appeal in a racist or anti-racist way, but there's nothing, I mean... I say this on every episode, sorry, but if anything, all these programs only disproportionately help the most marginalized, right? Yeah. Like if you get how racism works, you get that raising the minimum wage helps everyone, <laughs> yeah. but disproportionately yeah. women and people yeah. of color, yep. those are the majority exactly. of minimum wage workers. And, uh, and like making it easy to form unions again, that's going to be good for all kinds. I mean, there's so many issues like this, right. but they're, they're incredibly easy to find. There's nothing tricky about them. They are very straightforward. And, and yeah, you embrace those things and you win. The problem is that you don't get to, you know, uh, retire with a fat bank account and, and, you know, build a, build a fantastic presidential library somewhere, you know, right. it, it, all those things that presidents, I mean, they are, you know, they all expect that. By the way, okay, I'm going to change the subject on you again. Okay, cool. There's an essay in Rendezvous with Oblivion about um, presidential libraries. So I've went to a whole bunch of them. I went to the two Bush 
presidential libraries and the Clinton presidential library. And I didn't mention it in there, but I also went to the, the Truman Library because it's in Kansas City or it's in a suburb of Kansas City. And it costs something like a million and a half dollars to build. Oh, I thought you were going to say to get into. No, so Tru and Truman, he was not a wealthy man. Right. He was the last president that didn't go to college. And when he, he and he, they didn't Why? have pensions for presidents back then. And all he had was a, he had been, I think, a captain in the artillery during World War One or something. And so that's all he had. So he started doing... Um like breakdancing in subways. No, no he, he wrote he wrote his memoirs. Is what he did. Oh, okay. But he uh, uh, that's what they they instituted um, the giving presidents uh, pensions at that at that point because it was otherwise he was going to like basically die in poverty. But um, he somehow raised enough money to build a presidential library, and it was a million and a half dollars. And uh, the George Bush, the George W. Bush Presidential Library, something like. Um, I think it's half a billion dollars. It's like five hundred million. Or something That's like that. W or the father. Sorry. W, the latest okay. one. So there's like really and they, good but elevators. They, they go up. Like each one is more expensive than the preceding one. So the Bill Clinton one was pretty expensive, and then the George W. one is even more. Right. And um, and there's you know all the sort of trophy architecture and you know. Have you seen any of W.'s art, by the way? Uh, it was it, that had not come out yet at the time, and so oh, none of it was on display when I went there. Okay. Uh, but it was, I had a theory about the, the George W. Well, you, you'll see, it's all in the, it's all in rendezvous. But I had a theory about, so George W. Bush is an extraordinarily bad president. Mm -hmm. And these, um, Cheney, a, lot, really. a lot of the kids don't know that. Right? Oh, right, because anyone who's not Trump is now the best person ever. I know, I know, Super I know. woke President George Bush, yeah. So this, this, guy's a, this guy's an unusually disastrous president. You know, you've got uh, the Iraq war, you got Hurricane Katrina, you got the lobbying scandal, and you got the financial crisis to top it all off. You know, it's just like one awful disaster after another. And so the... The, uh, the sort of, I, I would hate to be the architect that had to design his museum because the challenge is how do you defuse the public's hatred for this guy? Like how do you keep people from just like exploding in rage as they, as they tour this museum? And so what they did, it's kind of interesting because they, they went to great lengths to figure this out. This is my theory. And it's like a nuclear reactor where you have the, you, you know, you have the fissile material and then you have the cadmium rods in between to keep, you know, to keep everything from blowing up and uh, so you, you you look at the exhibit about you know the Iraq war and you're like god damn it that was what a, that was so dumb even, you know and it yeah, was so costly you wrecked one. that country and then the next exhibit is about you know his dog Barney <laughs> And what a lovable guy he is. And there's a letter in a vitrine from Bono. You know, Bono oh, yeah. wrote to George W. Bush, and it's written. You're like, oh, you know, he must have been a good guy. And then it's the Hurricane Katrina exhibit next. You're like, oh, what was wrong? How did he not see this coming? What kind of a doofus was this guy? And then the next exhibit is like, he's, you know, look at, he's, he gave all this money for diseases in Africa, malaria. They fly, you know, and so you're like, Absence oh, yeah, only. That's, you know, that's good. That's nice. And right. the financial crisis, you know. <laughs> well, also, he gave all this money, but he also made it absence only stuff. So he killed a bunch of people. In yeah, the process, yeah, they so. don't, that's not, there's not an exhibit. They, oh, they, on don't, that. Have an altar, they don't have a shrine to the people. <laughs> yeah. he, uh, and the Clinton Library, I'll just tell my one joke about the Clinton Library. It looks like it's, it's, it's super uh, high, high, <laughs> it's very. <laughs> It's a big obelisk. Like the Washington yeah. Monument, right? Now, it, that would be appropriate, but it's, a, it's, a, it's this high-concept architecture. You know, it's this glass and steel, gigantic structure glass jutting steel. out over the... What's the river that runs through Little Rock? Is it the Arkansas? I don't, Danube. I don't, Danube. Yeah, I don't even remember. Danube. Bay. And it's, it, it's, it's supposed to be a bridge, right? It's supposed to be the goddamn bridge to the 21st century. Remember how he promised he'd get us over that bridge, right. and here we are, so th be thankful to him? Yeah. <laughs> So, so someone pointed out to me what it actually looks like is a shipping container. It's, yeah, it's, it's his free trade policies, right, yeah. right? There it is, up in the air over Little Rock. You it's know, like a illuminated at night. You know, this is the device that ruined your town. Right. Here it is, folks. It is. Yeah, let's hear it for NAFTA. I knew we had really pro-NAFTA audience. So by there. the way, when you know, Clinton and... Um, Bridge to the 21st century. I saw him say those words with my own eyes. That was the first political convention I ever attended in 1996 in Chicago. And I was up in the, you know, the, where they put the journalists <laughs> up right. in the cheap seats. And I looked, I leaned, craned way over him and, and I could see him. And he, yeah, I did saw he, him. Did he smile, go like that to you? He was, he was going like this. 
You know, oh, he was yeah. waving. Dan- that's a slippery slope from that to something else. Um, <laughs> question, though, for you. Part of, I think, why your perspective is so interesting is because you yourself um, used to be uh, a Republican. Yeah. Can you talk about your evolution? Or honestly, it's a devolution, depending on when you ask me, because I think libs are kind of so, worse. But anyway, where, where I come they're from certainly ev- more infuriating, because you expect more. Where I come from, I should just, the first thing I should say to get myself off the hook is, I was 15. Yeah, you were born into it. You can't and help it. And everyone where I grew up is a Repu- was and is a Republican in Kansas City. In the, I should say in Kansas. Now, in Missouri at the time, uh, Missouri was a Democratic state at the time. It since has the creeping Kansification of right. you know the entire Midwest. They took over Missouri about 10 years ago. And, uh, you know, and now it's what's what's next was Wisconsin. Wisconsin. Wisconsin is now a battleground state. It's like it blows the it, it right. just makes you crazy. But uh, yeah, but uh, when I was a kid, you lived in Kansas. You're a Republican. All the adults I knew were Republicans. And um, and I would watch Ronald, Ronald Reagan used to, nobody remembers this anymore. He used to be on the radio all the time. Like you, Katie. Yeah. He had a radio show and he would, he would, do these, he would do these little, <laughs> these little dollops of folk wisdom and political, um, you know, insights. Uh, yeah, insights, v- very short, like, like Reader's Digest style. And, um, there's another part of the conservative world that we, that we've completely forgotten. Reader's Digest. Does anybody read that anymore? My aunt but, used to read it. Yeah. Really? Yeah. No, I used to read it. It had those great the adventure in real life or whatever it was called. And then, and then it, the next story would be something about how, you know, yeah, college students are crazy. Just or, common uh, sense. <laughs> people in the third world are, hate our guts. Right. You know? <laughs> but uh, uh, anyhow, so Reagan had this, the, he would do these little snippets, very reassuring he had this wonderful voice, and I decided at some point, and this is, you know, the hostage crisis is going on. Jimmy Carter, a man that we all admired, you know, because he seemed like a down-home guy. He was a pious man. He was an admirable man in many ways. Just seemed like he was not up to the situation. And when you were 15, those kind of, oh, how would I put it? It's like it's like a stereotype vision of history. You know, we have a weak president, we need a strong one. We're, uh, you know, these terrible things are happening. We need this reassuring guy. Yeah. And uh, I bought into Reaganism in a big way when I was 15. And so that, but that transition from Carter to Reagan when I was young seemed so significant and seemed so meaningful. You know, that, that liberalism had run its course and it was weak and ineffectual. Inef- inflation is out of control. And here comes, you know, this handsome uh, man, you know, all this crap. And um, of course, I, 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 I got over it. Uh, uh, I got over it very quickly. Um, but you know who never did? Trump. I mean, this is Trump's whole take on Obama is, is Reagan versus Jimmy Carter. And he, I mean, right. he, he, make America great again, that's swiped directly from Reagan. Even though it, Obama gave props to Ray, uh, Reagan for being a transformative Well, every, everybody loves him, right? <laughs> I don't understand. Anyhow. Yeah. So, I guess yeah. He's, but then he's I, 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 got, I got over it. I got over it. You want to know how I got over oh, it? Oh, yeah. I got a job. <laughs> oh, okay. And so I went from, no, I, I, I was a, a, temp, I was a right. temp in Kansas City. I would type, right? I could type really fast. And I got paid very, very, very little. And the bosses were jerks. And um, you discover right away on basically your first encounter with the reality of work that all of this stuff that he's been telling you, that, that is a myth. That is a Reader's Digest myth. It's just not true. What he's saying about capitalism, it's false. Or the Contras. <laughs> yeah, or any of that stuff. And, um, and then one thing led to another, and I started reading books. And <laughs> <laughs> See, you can make that joke because you're from Kansas, but I can't make that joke. No, I always, I I always like read books, North, but when I was a child, when I, was a child I loved like 19th century novels and stuff. But then I went away to college, and the thing that blew my mind was in college, my first year, was how incredibly broad the human experience is. And you suddenly, this stupid little world that you think is everything is, you know, is, is just, it's just infinitesimal. Among other things I discovered, and this is especially interesting right now. So Reagan was a populist, lowercase p, you know, he had this way about him, this very folksy manner. And he, uh, uh, <laughs> You know, again, go back to Reader's Digest. It was that kind of phony populism, this this, this schlocky right. Norman Rockwell style. I, Norman Rockwell was a good guy, and I hate to, you know, uh, take uh, his name in vain. Yeah, yeah, but it was that that kind of, that kind of thing. And so we all knew the word populism back then. 
And I went away to college, and uh, I discovered that there actually had been something called populism with an uppercase P. And lo and behold, it had been in Kansas. I had never heard of that before. And I got really interested in it. And I started reading and reading about it. It's fascinating. It was a homegrown leftist movement demanding basically this war on Wall Street and nationalization of the railroads and, you know, uh, uh, all of this government regulation of the economy in the interests of these very poor farmers. And uh, I had no idea that this even existed. And I swear it was very early on that the light went on in my head that all of this stuff that Reagan is selling us and that before him Nixon was selling us, this is all a crock. This is, they have taken something that, that's very noble and they have swiped its symbols and its way of talking and its democratic impulse and they have hitched that to something really awful, you know, the market. Mm. And this occurred to me very early on, and, but it, I didn't start writing about it until the, uh, the 90s. But um, yeah, that was my awakening. It was in the early 80s. Early 80s. And you, um, then you wrote uh, What's the Matter with Kansas? Yeah, yeah. Fast forward fast a bit. Fast forward yeah. a bit. Um, we could talk about your days as a historian. Do you want to talk about that? I still am one. What do you mean? Well, I mean, sorry, your days as, as uh, pursuing As an academic. More, as an yeah, academic, yeah. right. Wait, once a historian. It's like alcoholism. Once a, an historian, always an historian. What is she saying? <laughs> That's a very uh, exciting. Uh, no, I love I love history. So so. No, I do, I do. I study history. I st I'm a total history nerd. Let's talk about. It. Okay, so I, I we love, can talk about historiography. I, of course, I love history, and it's all I ever all I ever wanted to be in life from very early on was a historian, and I. Much as I disagree with a guy like Richard Hofstadter, I, I admired him so much, his writing, wonderful. Um, Christopher Lash, who's very out of fashion these days, super admired that guy. I thought he was the greatest thing in the world. Who am I leaving out? Um, some more historians from that, that, that sort of golden age, the 50s, the 60s. I Howard's love those guys. In, because course. they wrote for, and he's one too, they wrote for a general audience. Right, Howard's in the were these were These were intellectuals who wrote for a general audience. Who am I thinking of? Arthur Schlesinger. Oh, yeah. And uh, again, a controversial guy nowadays, but you read his history of the New Deal, and I, I read that in you know very early on, and I absolutely loved it. The While it was being passed, you were reading it. Listening Sorry? To F you were listening to FDR on the yeah, radio. Right. I'm just kidding. I'm not yeah, being yeah. ageist. It's just a but that, that, that style of doing history, I really admired. So I went to um, college, studied history, went to graduate school, studied it some more, and got a PhD in the subject, American history, cultural and intellectual 20th century. And my dissertation was on the advertising industry in the 1960s. And maybe that sounds familiar to you. The conquest of cool, yeah. It's specifically about how the advertising industry embraced the counterculture, which is a, it's a really interesting topic. Um, you'll have to take my word for it right now. But no, it is, it's, yeah. It's, 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 it is absolutely fascinating. And you, I use that as a kind of a way of a cross-section of that period, the late 50s, you know, through the, up to the early 70s. That was my subject. And um, I get out of history school and well, first of all, there's 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 a, a big problem, which is that jobs. Uh, well, there's a, a, a larger problem, or I guess a longer term problem, which is that all not just history, but all academic departments really are no longer interested in writing for the general public. You write for right. your you write for your peers, you write for your colleagues, and if you read a lot of you know scholarly journals, this is what they do. A lot of interrogating and unpacking. Mm -hmm. Oh no, a lot of name checking and footnoting and calling out to one another, right. you know. And but they use the word interrogating a lot. Oh, sure, there's a lot of buzzwords, yes. I used to have a lot of fun making, you know, making fun of that stuff. That's what the baffler was all right. about. <laughs> we had a good time kicking those people around. Anyhow. <laughs> Gotta do more of that. <laughs> oh, they, we, they still do it. Right. I just, you know, I'm, I'm too old for that now. But they, uh, they, anyhow, so the other problem was, of course, the job market had uh, completely fallen apart by the time I got out of uh, history school and had my PhD. And I discovered, and this is not only the case in history, I think history is actually better off than other disciplines, but all the humanities and a lot of the social sciences too, that there's this overproduction of PhDs. And meanwhile, the 
the, the, the existing professors who are going out there to do the hiring have discovered that if they don't hire tenure track people and just hire Adjunct. adjuncts, that they can, you know, make their own workload much lighter, this kind of thing. And so I was able to get jobs as an adjunct, but I was not able to get anything tenure track, and it was extremely frustrating. And while I was doing this, you know, adjunct teaching, I was also writing for the Chicago Reader, one of our great alternative uh, news weeklies. I think it you still exists. Yeah. And um, I got paid more for a single story that I wrote for them than I did with an entire semester of adjunct teaching. And so here's the, here's the punchline, folks. I went into journalism for the money. Right. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, I can curse? Yeah. yeah I was like, fuck this shit. <laughs> <laughs> this is, you know. So I, I went into um, uh, journalism. All right, cool. Yeah, yeah. I have a, a, a question around. So, but I still uh, I still am a historian. I actually I actually even to this day read scholarly literature, and yes, I everything I write is has a historical grounding. Um, so the the one you've got you, uh, that one's a book of essays. So not so much. But like listen, listen liberal, liberal is, yeah. yeah. I did a ton of research in um, the sociology of professionalism, right. which was a hot topic in like the late eighties. My and mom so and uncle got into a fight over that. By the way. Oh, really? Over your book and the thesis, yeah. Awesome. We'll talk about it later. Yeah, yeah. My mom is more sympathetic. She really thinks you got to focus on the 1%. My uncle was more like, no, it's No, it's the 10%. Yeah, exactly. It's the 10%. My uncle was 10%. But, my mom's 1%. Yeah. In terms well, of who to vilify. Yeah. What the, vilify all of them, you know? Right. Seriously. But you got to focus on something. So, but they're, but so. they're very different. And we'll we'll right. talk about this right. in, in a little bit. But so, yeah, that, was, that book would not have been possible without doing a whole lot of reading in sociology. So just right. so you know. Or, I mean, I have a similarly rigorous process, uh, which is that I watch MSNBC <laughs> and I try to suppress my gag reflex. So, um, yeah. yeah. Uh, le <laughs> leading up to the election, I was uh, reading uh, Listen Liberal. Um, and uh, I was, uh, and everybody I knew had uh, a great faith that uh, Hillary Clinton was going right. to win the election. Um, all the way up until election night, at least in New York. And uh, you had predicted earlier, I, so I'm, I'm reading your book and I'm listening to the pundits and I'm very skeptical that she's gonna do anything, that she's yeah. gonna make it. But uh, you uh, predicted uh, Trump's victory well, not exactly. What I did was I, uh, I, I wrote many times during the course of the campaign, uh, this is how Trump is going to win. If Trump, you gave if him Trump the is, game plan. If Trump is, no, 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 no. I, I was watching what Trump was doing. It was very. I mean, come on, Katie. It was. It was so obvious. You know what he was up to. Uh, it is possible that he got that he. Look, you want to. You want to. <laughs> you, you, you ask where the guilt comes from. It, a, a lot of it comes from watching Trump talk about the things he's talking about and, and there's this flash of recognition or watching Steve Bannon especially talk about what he's talking about and you're like, oh shit, he, you know, that's like from The Wrecking Crew, you know, a book that I wrote or it sounds like it is, you know, it sounds like he's right. Oh, right. well, Trump's whole campaign strategy is from what's the matter with Kansas, you know, reaching out on the trade issue. Right, pseudo-populism. And, yep, and right down the, um, you know, and you can see it coming a mile away and everybody could see it coming. And I wrote an article. I didn't write it. It was an interview Ghost I did in the New York Times. Uh, Anna Marie Cox wrote it. And it was in the New York Times. And the headline was um, uh, Hillary needs to woo the working class because this is obviously Trump's strategy. It is obvious. Right. Anybody can see this coming. And as the year, as that sort of awful year dragged on, it became more and more obvious that it was Trump's year. And even if Trump lost we had turned a corner in this country and Trumpism was here to stay. And um, I thought Hillary was gonna pull it out until the very end because all the polls said so. Right. And she had her amazing campaign staff. And you remember like Trump had, Trump was endorsed by no newspapers. KKK. Like two, two news, oh yeah, right. But like two <laughs> newspapers, you know, and uh, Hillary was endorsed by hundreds right. of newspapers. Hillary had all these celebrities. Trump had almost no celebrities. Hillary Nugent? had, Hillary had this amazing algorithm. Do you remember? She had the everything, it was so high tech and all the right. micro targeting and she had right. Eric Schmidt on the campaign jet and you know, on and on and on it's like she had the you know she she had twice as much money as him right she had every advantage but she i'll never forget when I, uh, when I so 
I went and voted for her in early voting in, in okay. Maryland. It's okay. It's a safe space, guys. It's okay. What? I'm what? just kidding. I'm just kidding. You say that you get a lot of shit for voting for her. It's fine. It's the this general. This is in the general election. I, I, I voted for Bernie in the primary, but I voted for Obviously, her in the general. Obviously, you wouldn't be on the show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, well, I'm, I'm not going to vote for Trump, for God's sakes. Right. Anyhow, so so I I, I voted for There's her and I walked out of the polling place in Chevy Chase, Maryland, and uh, and I I turned on my car, the radio was on, NPR was on, and they're like, we have breaking news, uh, James Comey has just, and it was the, oh, yeah. it was the goddamn Comey memo, right. you know, that we're reopening the investigation of Hillary Clinton. I'm like, oh shit, and it happened right after I cast my vote. So yeah, I had the doubts, and then the, there's the story in there that. Uh, I'm kind of proud of, but it's it's also, you know, whatever, a little Mixed guilt emotions. too. This only happens once or twice in a journalist's career. I wrote the essay, the, the Trump wins essay, and turned it in two days before the election. I went down to right. Florida, to my brother's house in Florida, and um, and did the research for it, and Trump had these rallies. I mean, he bounced back from that incredible scandal, the, um, you know, the groping tape. And oh. I, I, I couldn't believe that. Because and he has the magic, he has like oh. the perpetual get out of jail free card, which is <laughs> yeah, that he already exactly. says he's a bad guy. Exactly. Kind of. But I was watching his rallies on, you know, YouTube right. or on Facebook or whatever, and they were persisting right up to the last minute. And they, they, I mean, he appeared to be, the enthusiasm for him appeared to be building. I would turn on the TV. This is in Florida now. The swing state to end all swing states. There's no Trump TV commercials on because he can't, he doesn't have any money, right? His campaign is run on a shoestring, which is still hard for me to believe to this day. There's Hillary commercials wall to wall. Then you go out in the countryside and there's Trump signs right. everywhere. Something is going on. And so, yeah, I wrote that essay and... Uh, People made fun of you for it, too. People made fun of you for, like, changing your opinion on what was happening, which I think is just called well, being observant and living in the real yeah, world. Yeah, And uh, it's, it's not something Smug that... Liberal. And it's the angriest essay I ever wrote. It's highly polished. It was highly... This is, this is you know, it was highly polished. It was uh, ready to go. Turned it into The Guardian a couple of days before the election. And they put it up four minutes after the AP called Wisconsin for Trump. And... Uh, you know, it's a it's a beautiful essay. It's very well written, and it had it had, it had all the links. Very it had all it, was it, it had all the links. You know, characterized it was, it was, by that was, typical humility that yeah. No, no, but it, you, go back, you go back no, and you look. You go back writer, and look at what, and I, that election caught everybody else right. in this country flat-footed. They're like, you, oh, yeah. what do we do now? You know, it's like the New York Times. Everybody get back in here. You know, they're right. all out. Right, they're all about drowning to dig into their, their filet mignon. Right. <laughs> so yeah, so I I did something right. Well, you we had Benjamin. Jealous on, as you know, because he's now uh, the, the nominee. No, but we did have Ben Jealous on the day of the election. So there was you, Michael Moore, and Ben Jealous were three people who were actually entertaining the idea that maybe Trump would win. Yeah, um, yeah. It was really funny because when we had Ben Jealous on, he was about to leave and we were wrapping up. And I jokingly said, we should tape two endings. It was the day of the election. I said, we should tape two endings in case Trump wins <laughs> or nice Hillary thinking. wins. Huh? And he's like, why tape the Hillary one? No, yeah, he was, like, he was like, at this point, he was like, ha, 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 at this point, Fear the possibility that Trump wins, and then he goes through what he calls, talks about cicada voters, these voters who don't come out every election. Oh, that's that a good you, term. Yeah, yeah, it's a good term, right? Unlike do you voters. have cicadas here? So in Kansas City, they are we do right. This okay, we do. Incredible yeah. racket. I once made a tape recording of them. What racket? I love that idea. The the, the yeah. noise, like the noise that they make a in racket. August. I thought you meant like a business racket. No, no, okay, no. They, they, they're up in the okay. trees, right. like singing to each other, yeah. you know. And it's just the most incredible thing. And it goes on for like a month in the summertime. Okay, that's uh, not what he was referring to, though. But okay, but okay. I do want to know we, more about they, the They have them every year, and they're the most incredible thing. Right, yeah. but they only come out what something. No, you're thinking of the seven-year locust, which is different. I've never, ben I never jealous, saw those. I can't be, it's good thing this didn't come out before the election or he would have been crushed <laughs> by his opponents. He, didn't, he meant locust voters. Yeah. Anyway. But they are a kind of cicada, so. Oh, okay. Subgenre cicada. Yeah. They're circadian. Anyway, they don't come out that often, so they don't get pulled. Would and you he was drink saying that, that thing, please? You're, you're driving me crazy. What, with this thing? Yeah. You Why, just, you're holding it up. Just like, do well, something with it. First of all, first of all it was nervous. upside down. The thing was upside down. This is why, like Sarah Palin, I need a rider. Uh, my appearances where the... Anyway. Um, all right, I'll put this down. Gosh. Do you like this setup, by the way? It's, it's um, a round one fern. Instead of between two friends. Um, 
So yes, you guys were the. I, I'm. I call. I'm going to call you right now for the first time. Pretend I used to do it. The Three Musketeers. Ha. <laughs> You, nice Ben Jealous, you. and Michael Moore. I'm sure I'm leaving out a lot of people, um, including women, so I apologize. Uh, it takes a village, guys. Um, you like that callback? Uh, sorry? Hil- you like my callback? It oh, takes a village Hillary, to Hillary. Yeah, to Hillary. Yeah, yeah, Which, yeah. the best part of that, make sure you reread the section where she waxes poetic about using uh, the, prison labor. Yep. One unusual aspect of living in the Arkansas governor's mansion was getting to know prison inmates who were assigned to work in the house and the yard. When we moved in, I was told that using prison labor at the governor's mansion was a long-standing tradition that kept down costs, and I was assured that the inmates were carefully screened. Now, I had defended several clients in criminal cases, but seeing them in jail or in court was not the same as encountering a convicted murderer in the kitchen every morning. I was apprehensive but I agreed to abide by tradition until I had a chance to see for myself. I learned a lot as I got to know the inmates better. We enforced the rules strictly and sent back to prison any inmate who broke one. Yeah. So I missed that. I actually did reread that book, but I, I went through it pretty fast. Right. Uh, and I and I missed that that nugget. But I, for Listen Liberal, I had to read all that stuff. So um, how did you go from being... The best a- book about her, by the way, Carl Bernstein, wrote a wonderful biography of her. And, it, and there's parts of it that make you... Um, really sympathetic to her. Yeah. And, uh, you know, she's this uh, Midwestern girl from, you know, not not totally humble background, but a very, like, like Charlie Brown and, and Lucy and Linus, you know, this sort of perfect Midwestern suburb in the post-war era. And... Uh, I would have liked to hear more of that on the campaign trail. Right. Anyhow, that was all, that seemed to get lost. You know, oh, do you want to hear my, another joke about Hillary? Yeah. How she could have won. This is my joke for how Hillary could have won Kansas. That was our live taping with Thomas Frank. And to hear the rest of that interview, and it gets really good, gets a little rowdy. There's some references to scrota, the plural of scrotum. Uh, become Patreon members at patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. And you will hear the rest of that interview. And leave us a review. Oh my gosh, guys, you can find The Katie Halper Show on SoundCloud, on iTunes, on Patreon. And at Patreon, you just become members and you'll really enjoy it. You'll be really happy that you did it. And uh, that's patreon.com slash The Katie Halper Show. And on iTunes, leave us a review. You can make it short. You can make it long. You can do whatever you like. You can do whatever you like. You know, just a little callback. Um, So we will see you next week.